0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this
1: conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. Uh, I am your co-host, Kirk Johnson, along with my other co-host, Amelia Barwise. And we are excited to have a a member part of our team on Bioethics in the Margins, someone that usually does all the sound and editing. Uh, We have uh, Nicole K. Strand here, who is the Assistant Professor for the Center of Urban Bioethics, the Director of Equity and Culture Initiatives, Office of Health Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philly, in Philadelphia. We're so excited to have you, Nicole.
0: Thank you so much. Glad to be here on this side of the mic.
1: <laughs> I know, right? This is a interesting, um, um, but also such a, a fun time. Um, so uh, to start, um, we're talking about a big hot topic issue uh, critical race theory the you know the uh, boogeyman in the room and we really wanted to uh, have a podcast to uh, really demystify um, and really bring some clarity and understanding of uh, critical race theory so a quick little uh, uh, summary slash question about critical race theory a critical race theory uh, basically, in itself, is a concept, right? It's a, it's a, it's a theory, but really, um, having a transparent lens or understanding, right, of, of our racial history in our country, um, and to look at it, even though it may be uncomfortable, right, um, looking it in in a way, constructively, right, to, to really um, alleviate the racial woes that we have had and the stains that we have had in our society for. Um, forever right since the exception of this country and uh, my question for you or at least a starting point is um, what are your thoughts on critical race theory um, and we know that this is in K through 12 education uh, but specifically has there been um, any pushback any conversations at the uh, graduate level but also in the medical school level um, in regards to medical education and curricula about this uh, topic
0: yeah so great question and I, i agree with you about your definition of critical critical race theory Um, you know, I'm, I come from a legal background and that's really where this started. It really is a legal framework. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's sort of ironic that now we're talking about, you know, banning first graders from learning critical race theory when of course they never were in the first place. Um, Critical race theory is now, like you said, it's sort of a boogeyman or sort of a catch all term for any time we talk about race and racism in a lot of ways. uh, and so that's that's something we should make clear off the bat, which is any of these bans on critical race theory are really much larger than that. They're bans on on talking about racism at all, and talking about um, taking a real look at, at our history and our country's sort of, like you said, inception b- being really based on, on racism. So, so to get to your question, you know, the the university context is slightly different from the K through twelve context, and that's mostly because much of the fear around critical race theory or even just racism generally has surrounded what it's so quote unquote doing to our children, right? Um, You know, worries about kids being, like you said, feeling guilty or ashamed or afraid about their own whiteness and, um, you know, parents really reacting to that. Um, But when you have a culture war that's as powerful as this one is, it leaks into other areas, It, it just always does, right? And so it's certainly been infiltrating the university setting. Um, We have some sort of current news, in fact, on this. Just yesterday, I think it was, which is February 17th, Mm -hmm. um, Texas Lieutenant Governor, I can't remember his name now, but he just recently pledged to extend the, the critical race theory ban in Texas to public universities. So there is a threat that it's going to expand to universities, and he basically said that they're gonna change the law such that anybody who teaches critical race theory in a university setting um, could could be have their tenure revoked in Texas. So this is a pretty big deal. Um, and when we're talking about a university setting, we're including, of course, graduate schools and medical schools that are attached to them. So you know, when former President Trump signed an executive order banning certain kinds of training and teaching about race and racism. Uh, back in, I believe that was 2018, 2019, there was conversation in legal circles at the time about how far that ban could go, how, how widely it could be applied. And since it covered federal contractors, there was a fear, and I think a well founded one, that faculty and universities who receive federal funding might be forced to undergo some kind of an audit, of their grant funded activities and maybe purge all their teaching or their grant funded activities that fell under the sort of ban, which is a pretty vague sort of general don't don't teach or talk about racism kind of ban. Mm-hmm. Um, there are not really hard lines around this kind of thing and any of these bills in the legislatures across the country, there are like 20 states that have bills either passed already or pending about this. Um, the, uh, the way they're written, the language is actually kept really vague on purpose and the scope is kept really broad on purpose, um, you know, to, to make this as broad as it possibly can be. Um, so whether critical race theory is actually banned at a university or not, there is definitely a fear that critical race theory is like a third rail topic or that racism in general is a third rail topic. And that climate of fear creates a chilling of speech no matter what, right? That's what it does. And, you know, the irony is, of course, that universities and medical schools in particular are such important places to teach about this and to have conversations about the ways that race is embedded in American institutions to the detriment of, you know, Black Americans, mostly. Um, If we don't learn our history, we're destined to repeat it. Right. And if we haven't learned that lesson by now, then then we're sort of running out of hope, I fear.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And um, I had an opportunity to actually read uh, one of your articles, and I highly suggest everyone um, that is listening to uh, take a look at it. Uh, the title here is, and I do have it in front of me Racial Myths and Regulatory Responsibility, um, by uh, of course our, our guest, uh, but really not a guest because she's part of the team, uh, Nicole Strand. And uh, this is part of the Race um, and Ethnicity Summer 2021 um, edition from the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. I'm gonna be specific so our listeners could actually know precisely how to uh, find this particular uh, great piece regarding regulatory um, metrics and race. And before I bring my awesome co-host in Amelia, um, I do have a question on that. Uh, Should race be a part of research metrics? Um, What are your thoughts on, on that?
0: Yeah. So thanks for highlighting my article. Um, feel free to check it out, anybody. Um, yeah, it's a complicated question. I, I think it's yes and no, right? So we, we have to tease out what we mean by that. So so first and foremost, we know that there are huge racial disparities in almost every disease and almost every health, health outcome, there are huge racial disparities. And, and we need to know that. So we shouldn't blind ourselves to that information. We shouldn't, we shouldn't pretend not to look at it in the name of colorblindness or in the name of you know avoiding treating race as a biological variable. The tricky thing is that race is biologically meaningful, just not for the reasons that we were taught, right? So it's, it's a powerful social construct that creates disparate experiences and opportunities and, and traumas, which can cause real physiological effects. You know, the example that always comes to mind for me is the impact of redlining, right? So this is the practice of, you know, banks and the federal government joining together to draw lines around neighborhoods where people of color lived and refusing people federal housing loans in those areas. The impact of redlining is huge and it's deep and it's still ongoing, right? So this, first of all, redlining wasn't that long ago. It was like in the 1960s when it actually ended. So really only 40, 50 years ago. And it wasn't that there was something inherent and immutable and biological and unchangeable about the people living in those redlined areas. It was that the social and political construct of race and how it threatened white people in power Um, created this practice of redlining and then caused a huge racial disparity in economic opportunity, which then impacted health and still impacts health today. If you look at any area on any map in a a city in the United States that was redlined, you're going to see huge differences in chronic disease and poverty and everything else in those neighborhoods. So all that is true. We shouldn't blind ourselves to that. So we need to study race for that reason. We also need to move beyond what I call first generation health disparities research. Um, So, first generation health disparities research is does a disparity exist in breast cancer, in maternal mortality, in COPD? Doesn't matter, pick a thing. The first generation research is does the thing exist? And then the second is what is the root cause of that? Why does it exist? And then the third, Um, generation of that research is what should we do about it? What are some interventions we can design to try to mitigate it? Mm. And since we know that there are powerful racial health disparities, we need to do race-specific research on health interventions and root cause analyses to try to alleviate the problem. So all of that is to say, yes, we need to study race in research, but we need to be careful about what role race is playing as a variable in our studies. So the rubric that I use in my head is, what is race serving as a proxy for, right? So in the case of some studies, race is clearly a proxy for biology, it's a proxy for some unknown genetic variable or biological difference that would make a black body react differently to a drug than a white body, right? And when that's the purpose that it's serving, it is quite literally junk science, right? There is just far too much genetic diversity among people, especially among black Americans in the United States, for that to be meaningful, there is no one single mutation or enzyme that everybody black in the U.S. shares that is not shared by everybody white in the U.S. or everybody Asian or native. And it just just doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. But race does serve as a good proxy for, I think, one, one thing, which is exposure to racism. If we treat race as a structural, political, social variable, it means that we may not understand exactly what the complex causal chain is that leads to a disparity. But we know for sure that the reason we're seeing a disparity is because of racism, not biological race. And so, you know, it's sometimes hard to discern this when we're looking at a study, looking at a study at face value that that we know uses race as a variable. We have to ask ourselves a number of questions. We have to kind of have a careful and nuanced conversation with the principal investigator or whoever's a part of the research and be intentional about putting more social scientists on study teams because if race is a social variable, we need people who understand race as a social construct and that's social scientists primarily. Um, So unfortunately, the answer isn't as simple as, yes, use race as a variable or don't, but we have to be intentional and thoughtful every time.
2: I just want to come back to the um, the side concept of critical race theory and particularly um, the K through 12 um, level. Um, I feel some of the backlash is kind of just related to the wording, critical race theory. Like it does sound very intellectual and critical is in there i know that's not what it's meaning in that phrase but um i mean there's been a backlash against academics intellects you know experts you know in the healthcare environment and in other domains um what is it about the the us that makes it so averse to learning about this um you know, just learning kind of what are the root causes of race differences. Um, it's very different to how other countries approach teaching their history. Can you comment on that?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think it'd be fair to say that you might be thinking of Germany and their approach, right, to, to how they've sort of reconciled their own past and their sort of experience in um, Nazi Germany during World War II versus how we've done it here. And, you know, I, I'm not a historian. So I don't know, I, I don't know that I have like an exact answer to this. But I, a book that I recommend um, that I think really gets at some of some of the answer is a book called cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And it talks extensively about how essentially Nazi Germany stole their caste system from us, they borrowed everything they know about how to divide people into racial categories and then subjugate one of them beneath the other from us. Um, You know, notions of biological race, of racial purity, um, you know, things like the one drop rule, the way they built their caste system was literally based on Jim Crow and segregation and other things that we had here in America. So, So part of me wants to say that one reason that they have been better at reconciliation than we are is because it actually doesn't go quite as deep into their history as ours does. Our nation was literally founded on racism and slavery, right, we had an entire civil war more than 200 years ago which was fundamentally was a fight over slavery and so we now still have a cultural divide that harkens back to that era with you know confederate flags as the symbol of it and we have a political party that unfortunately really greatly benefits from the continued racial divisions um, so there's another book i want to recommend here too which is called the sum of us by heather mcgee and that book talks about how white people are hurt by racism too Racism's goal is to divide people, so, so to keep us infighting amongst each other so that the powers that be can maintain their power. So McGee um, has a good example in the book of uh, Medicaid. So she argues that the reason that so many Republican states have still not expanded Medicaid, despite the fact that you know the largest benefactor of expanding Medicaid uh, would be poor white people, is because Republicans successfully ran a campaign against it. Um, essentially using a racist dog whistle. So they convinced poor white people that it would be better to maintain their status in the racial hierarchy than to accept a government handout because they accepted it. if they accept a government handout, then black people and immigrants and other marginalized people might get a leg up and potentially cut them in line, right? So poor white people vote against their economic interests over and over and over again because Republican politicians backed by large corporations convinced them that their most important interest is in maintaining whiteness and white supremacy, that if they stay white and white stays superior to black, then they have a chance to achieve the American dream or to become a billionaire or something, but that if they let people of color cut in line ahead of them, then their chances go down. And it's actually a really genius political move, right? And I don't know enough about the political parties in in Germany or other countries um, to say, but it seems to me like America is, right now in a really dangerous, anti-democratic, late stage capitalist state. And it it fundamentally keeps racism alive and keeps reconciliation from happening because powerful people are benefiting from us continuing to fight with each other and benefiting from us not reconciling the way that a country like Germany has.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, you're right, but it is amazing what they have managed to do in Germany Um, and not just kind of document and make sure that everybody at school is exposed to what happened um, in the Second World War with, you know, photos, documents, archives, visiting concentration camps and Holocaust memorials, but also actually digging into the ideology, the flaws in the ideology and reading both sides, including Mein Kampf as well as the books that disputed Hitler. Um, And they did also learn about segregation and what was going on in the US with racism and slavery. Um, but they also kind of explore, like, how people were complicit in the whole thing. Um, and so it really, it it wasn't just this happened, you know, all the bad people are gone. It was very much a reckoning with how people um, allowed it to happen. Um, and I think it's probably helped that country move on to become now a leader in the EU Um and, you know, things like flying the flag in Germany is, is very rarely done by, by, by people at home and things like that. It's a very different um, attitude to national pride than, than, than is in the U.S. Um, just following on, though, from this teaching in schools, I think it's such a shame that there's this backlash. Um, does the banning of the books that we've seen in recent months sort of fit in? to the same sort of passion that we, we've we had in the school board meetings and this opposition to basically just teaching history?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's the same problem. I think it's of a piece, right? Um, again, you know, same issue, powerful people benefit from maintaining the status quo. And if our youngest generation gets woke to what's really going on, um, to the forces at play, and to the fact that racial solidarity would actually be mutually beneficial, then there would be a risk of the power structure toppling, right? So keeping information and education from kids is the only way to stop it. Um, and it's ironic because that their side, banning books and banning CRT, um, they say they're doing that because... We are indoctrinating our kids, but it's actually the opposite, right? Keeping that truth and that history from kids is the indoctrination. It is the thing that continues to maintain white supremacy. It's just that we don't see white supremacy as indoctrination in the same way because it is the hegemony, right? It is the existing power structure. It's much more invisible because... It's what most people already believe. It's the assumption already embedded into American culture. When you say something different, something opposite, it seems radical and indoctrinated and Marxist and communist, as opposed to saying what we've all believed all along,
2: right? Mm. So do you think ethicists should be more vocal in the public domain? For example, even at school board meetings, You've talked in your blog and the Hastings Center um, about how academics need to push back, um, but what about you know in in education K through twelve is there a role for bioethicists to be speaking up um, and and trying to highlight as you said what um, the book the some of us describes how it's ultimately going to benefit society as a whole if we can address these problems.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so. You, you know me, I'm always on a soapbox about how ethicists and bioethicists need to get mix it up and get, get involved in politics more. I mean, you know, we are loath to discuss politics because we're afraid that it will make us seem like we're taking a political side. But but we're past politics here, I think, you know, we're in the human rights space. We're in the death of democracy space. Right. And and the right has succeeded in making it seem like talking about race is political or making it seem like you know talking about racism is the liberal agenda but we can't play into their hands we shouldn't we shouldn't just accept that premise and agree with them and then agree not to talk about it it's been politicized but it's not political it's about morality and what are we if not I mean we're ethicists so that's what we're supposed that's our domain um seems to me that no matter what set of values or sort of Um, you know, theory of ethics you you subscribe to, if you're a principalist, if you're a utilitarian, a Kantian, a Rawlsian, the way that racism operates in society is wrong in every one of those rubrics. So, you know, I think we need to get vocal about this or else I think that our field is at risk of losing meaning and credibility. You know, when I was at the commission, we talked often about um, democratic deliberation as a way of doing bioethics, and the first tenet of democratic deliberation is that you have to have a, a universal agreement about a set of empirical facts, right? If if the if the public or whatever group it is that's engaging in this ethical debate doesn't at first at least agree on some capital T truth somewhere, then you, we're not going to make any progress mm-hmm. towards towards solutions or what the right answers are. We're operating off of two different set of facts in that case. So we we cannot allow there to be two different sets of facts. There is one truth, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, there's interpretations and journalists journalists have bias and all that stuff is true, sure. But we are actually keeping truth from kids and, and therefore from the democratic public. And that just has to be wrong. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to say that that's wrong or else where are we,
2: right? I agree. Yeah.
1: Right, absolutely, absolutely. And the actual uh, Lieutenant Governor, had to do um, a little quick research from Texas was Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick uh, that actually created that uh, band uh, of teaching critical race theory in publicly funded state colleges and uh, universities. Um, and uh, Nicole, what really came to mind in our, you know throughout our conversation, uh, speaking with Amelia and myself, um, uh, a quote from. Uh, President Lyndon B. Johnson, regarding why um, individuals, uh, particularly uh, white individuals, uh, really vote against their best interests. And this quote really hits the nail right on the head. I'll tell you what at the bottom of it, he said, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Yes. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Exactly. And, end quote. <laughs> that quote is so profound in many ways. And he said this decades ago, yep. but it's still so prevalent yep. um, in the 21st century in 2022. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's mind boggling and irrational. But obviously, um, racism is irrational. But of course, you have to make some rationalization out of the irrational <laughs> in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 to translate that quote and that understanding within uh, medicine with um because uh, I know you spoke a little bit about that in your uh, paper that I just mentioned for our audience. Um, in, in in your in your lens or opinion, what precedent does Bidel set, and should the idea of Bidel create a cause of concern in this niche market uh, in the pharmaceutical industry.
0: Yes, 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 vital is very concerning. So maybe I'll back up and just say like a couple of sentences as briefly as I can about what that is for people Mm -hmm. who don't know. Vital is the first race-specific drug, first drug in the United States that was patented for a particular race. Of course, Black Americans was the race. That's always the race, um, which is notable. Um, Essentially, you had a researcher who was interested in a, a combination of two generic drugs. He just kind of had a pet project about it. It was a vasodilator for heart failure. Um, he combined the two drugs to create this new substance, which he then um, got a, went to a pharmaceutical company so they could manufacture it, um, called it vital and then he proceeded to study it for a number of years, 20 years. He studied it against placebo and against a blood pressure drug and against an ACE inhibitor, and it just kept not working as well as he wanted it to. And so he wasn't making any money off of it, which, uh, of course, you know at this point he had he did partner with a pharmaceutical company and he had a financial interest and a stake in making the drug successful. And so when it wasn't successful and he couldn't get an NDA from the FDA and he couldn't he couldn't get it marketed by the FDA because it wasn't working. He went back into his data he spliced and diced it and he looked for a way that he could find something that was successful about the drug and what he found in his spliced and diced data was that the drug worked slightly better for black people in his studies than it did for white people very negligible tiny sample size very small statistical significance and you know, the studies weren't designed to to discover that, right? So we know enough about clinical trials to know that that's not how you design a good study. If you wanna compare whether something works better in one population than another, then you have to take those two populations and you have to match them as carefully as you can. So you'd have to have taken X number of black people and X number of white people and matched them In every other possible way on age and other demographics and how sick they were and other clinical indicators and then determine does this drug really work better in one group than another. Uh, But he didn't do that because this was just a retroactive you know retrospective sort of um, splice and dice that he was doing, but it was enough for him to think oh maybe there's a commercial future here I can capitalize on this, so he went to back to um, the patent board and got himself a patent for vital for African Americans quote unquote. He then studied BIDL in only a population of African-Americans, showed that it did in fact work as a sort of slight benefit when you added it on top of an existing first line drug. And then he was able to market it. He had a 20 year patent, he made a lot of money off of it and it still gets prescribed today. So, you know, I spoke to a couple of physicians just a few days ago who told me that in fact, BIDL is still being prescribed exclusively to African-Americans, quote unquote, self-identified African-Americans. And it's really just stunning to me that physicians who are generally smart people with lots of good judgment can keep making such a strange decision that's not based in logic like i actually i genuinely want to ask every one of them which drug does barack obama get does he get the white drug or the black drug are his kidneys white (laughs) kidneys or black kidneys are his lungs white or black is his muscle mass white or black right the Mm -hmm. deeper root of the problem with vital to me is twofold one it reifies or sort of cements the notion that there are distinct and biologically meaningful racial categories, that they are separate from each other, that nobody ever immigrated or mated with each other, that we've always had these like very distinct groups that have never literally like like mixed with one another. And two, I think the more insidious, very deeper sort of notion and assumption that's buried in there is not just that black bodies are different, but that they're inferior. So if you think about it, most drugs, pretty much every drug on the market today, was approved back when we only did research on white men. That's who was in our research studies. A drug studied on white men was good enough to approve. The FDA put its stamp on it, and then the rest of the population used it because white is the default. Mm-hmm. But Vital, a drug that was essentially only studied in black people, was not deemed good enough for white people. It would have been absurd to even suggest that although the study participants were Black, vital was still good enough to be prescribed to non-Black people. So I think Vital set a precedent and probably didn't really set it. It set it in the pharmaceutical context, but it continued off of a precedent that there is profit to be made in continuing the myth of biological race, that we can patent and market and sell race-specific drugs and treatments, even with no real scientific basis for their race-based application, and we can use it to corner a market share right it set the precedent that we didn't need comparative data to make racial claims the most unbelievable thing to me about BIDL is that there was never a study designed to figure out if it really worked better in white people than it did in black people or vice versa that study doesn't exist it was a sleight of hand it was like a magic trick it was a splicing and dicing and that should really have us concerned from an ethical standpoint but also from a standpoint of you know what suffices as evidence based medicine these days you know maybe Maybe most of the evidence that forms our evidence-based medicine comes from stronger studies than the ones that studied vital. I I hope that's the case. But Mm -hmm. if so, I think more than anything what that proves is that our notion of race as biological, despite it flying in the face of, of logic and science, is so powerful that we're willing to change our standards for evidence to match our preconceptions and our assumptions. We're so willing to double down and triple down and quadruple down on this idea that black bodies are different in some way that we can't really describe or say, we can't point to the mutation exactly, but we know they're different, such that we're willing to kind of ignore logic and science to continue to bake that into medicine. So I think it's really, really dangerous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this work, obviously, uh, you mentioned Dorothy uh, Roberts, also Jonathan Kahn, also Catherine Bliss, and many other um, uh, colleagues in the field uh, that really focus on Uh, how powerful these misconceptions are um, in in this particular work of trying to debunk and alleviate um, and, uh, again, demystify uh, these age-old notions of race um, and their connections. um, Well, it's disconnections, but always the, um, the willingness to try to reconnect race with genetics and biology and all these other um, anthropological methods that are false, but some way along the way, we continue to uh, connect these two together. Um, it's, it's, it's literally remarkable. After all of, uh, you know, the Human Genome Project of 2000, which we know that we're 99.9%, the same it says 0.01% regarding our phenol, you know, the phenotype, uh, physiognomy of, of our facial features and all these other things that make us different, but yet we're still talking about uh, these issues uh, this day. So human bias is um, extremely powerful, um, whether it's implicit or explicit. Uh, and my follow-up question uh, to you about this is, uh, obviously race is a social political construction, right? Um, why do we still use it though? In research in society today, and I know you briefly talked about it regarding the metrics um, within research. Uh, but in your in your opinion, um, why do we even use race? Why can't we just disregard race altogether?
0: Because of racism. So I had this conversation with a group of my students the other night in class, and they were they were so insightful about it. I asked them. You know what are the forces and incentives that keep up the charade that race is biological why do we keep doing this despite exactly what you just said kirk that at least since the year 2000 we have known for sure that it is not biological race is not biological period but we continue to let the idea and the assumption permeate permeate medicine the answer um, that my students gave me because i've trained them very well is capitalism and i think they're right right so if we think about where this idea started, in America at least, right, Thomas Jefferson and many other founders of our country were, were commenting and writing in public documents. We have all this on record. It's not a, it's not a secret right. that, for example, there was a dysfunction in the pulmonary apparatus of, of a black person, of a slave. He literally invented a biological reality, a pathology, a dysfunction, in black people in order to justify slavery. So he, he was using it to help alleviate the guilt of some white slave owners because he was insisting that because of their defective lungs, black people were quote unquote, fit for the field and little else. And that slavery was actually vitalizing their blood. In other words, don't worry white people, don't feel bad about slavery. We're actually helping black people because they're sick and there's a dysfunction and we're helping them. Slavery is good for them, which is just disgusting, right? right? But the motivation is pretty transparent because the entire U.S. economy was built off of the back of enslaved people. So we wouldn't be the richest country in the world if it wasn't for slave labor. It was the cheapest and most exploitive form of labor. It allowed the rich to get richer. And it only worked because white people were able to convince themselves that black bodies were different and inferior. And so the notion is so deeply embedded into American history and so closely aligned with powerful interests like domination and capitalism, that we can't shake it. And so we just continue to replicate it. We continue to do studies that are poorly designed, like those studies that led to vital And they continue to reify what we thought we already knew. We already had an assumption that Black bodies were different. We studied it. We found out that we were right. Um, by the way, any reason that we see that we might be right about a difference between black and white bodies is because of racism. But as long as we continue to believe that the reason is because of biology, then we continue to prove our own point. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and then we just continue to embed it deeper and deeper into medicine. There are like dozens of different clinical algorithms that use race as a coefficient, that use race as a as a some way to change the algorithm from, um, you know prescribing vital only for black people, to spirometry, which is a measurement of lung function where we address, adjust the machine if the person is black, um, to we had a recent win where the, the way we did this for kidney function just recently changed, but for decades, we've used a different coefficient for African-Americans when we measure their kidney function. So and those are just three examples, but there's dozens of them. So we just continue to repeat it over and over again. And I think it's because it's so embedded into the history of this country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, there's a great book about um, race and asthma. Um, um, It came out in 2021 by uh, Lindy Brown, breathing, Lindy Brown, excuse me, breathing race into the machine, the surprising career of the spirometer from plantation to genetics. And uh, this is such an interesting and creative work, but a great work in in, in regarding uh, asthma. And of course, the racialization of body parts, like the lungs, as uh, as you mentioned um, earlier, Nicole. So that's just another um, a great point, um, but also a great resource into really looking more deeply into the connection um, or disconnection between race and also biology. Uh, Amelia? Go ahead.
2: I was just going to add that also I think this idea of individualized medicine as kind of sort of built off this, not deliberately, but it's almost, it's quite confusing for people when they hear about, you know, well, I can get this because of, you know, my genes and this is going to help me specifically for them not to understand then that um, they're sharing so much DNA with other people. So I feel that's, I mean, kind of confusing. And also there is a big push in academic uh, medical centers to recruit minorities to clinical trials. Um, what's the purpose of this? Do you think, and is this necessary and useful?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question because it's really complicated, right? I mean, I was I was giving a lecture series at one of our affiliate hospitals, and the first lecture I gave a lecture about how we should diversify clinical trials, why it's important, blah blah blah, the history of how we haven't included people of color, um, you know, for centuries in clinical trials. And then the second lecture I gave was about race-based medicine and how race is not biology. And so it does seem confusing to people like, well, you just said race isn't biology. You just hammered us for an hour about how this is made up and it's social and it's political and it's not biological. So then why do we need diversity in clinical trials? I think that's totally fair. I think this is really complicated, right? So first thing I would say is clinical trials are not just about biology. Right. And when we design clinical trials thoughtfully, I think we are thinking about or should be thinking about social and structural elements and cultural elements too. whether a population can take a particular drug in the way we are prescribing it at the times we are prescribing it is just as relevant as whether it would work on their bodies if they took it exactly as prescribed. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I'm thinking about um, actually asthma, Kirk, because you know, there's a question about what the best, you know, treatment is first line treatment for a kid who has asthma. And if you wanted to design a clinical trial to figure out what the best first line of defense was in a place like where Temple is in North Philadelphia with deep poverty, history of redlining, etc. You would have to consider elements like whether the kid can have the inhaler on them in school, whether there's a school nurse, whether somebody can help them administer it you know, whether they whether the family has the money to purchase the inhaler as often as they need to. I mean, it would be irresponsible not to consider those things because you could have the best drug in the world, and if the kid can't access it or use it, then it's useless. So we need to diversify clinical trials for that reason because they're not just about biology, but also, and I think more complicatedly, you know, Ancestry does have some biological relevance, right? So there are certainly, um, I can't remember the name of the drug now I want to say it's a blood pressure drug that has some um, limited effectiveness in certain Asian populations because of a particular mutation. Right and so it's one of those things where we studied it on only white people, then we started using it in other populations and it turned out that there were subgroups of populations with certain ancestry. For whom it didn't work as well, because of a mutation that leads to an enzyme that metabolizes the thing differently, so, although we can't look at a person ask them how they identify they tell they tell us they identify as black and now we know something about their genes we can say that if all of our clinical trials and especially all of our clinical trials that involve some kind of pharmacogenetics um, and and that involves some kind of complex interaction between the drug and the person's genome we can say that that if those trials are as they are now 90 to 95 percent of people with white european ancestry then we are missing things. We are missing things, right? And so you've got to include as many people with as many diverse backgrounds as possible because there very well could be mutations that come from a particular part of, you know, West Africa that you're not going to you're not going to find out whether those drugs interact with those mutations unless you've got a significant number of black people such that at least some of them come from that part of West Africa. I mean, right now it's just it's so distorted. It's like 90/10 or 95/5 that we certainly are missing things. But I also think it's important, you know, I was just reading a, uh, about a study the other day about um, uh, sequencing a bunch of, uh, of what they're calling black genomes, 500 black people study their genomes and how they, how they can lead to certain cancers, which is important to do because you might be getting something, learning something about particular subsets of African ancestry that do have an important role to play in cancer but i think we have to say that the reason we see disparities in cancer care is not because of some genetic mutation it's because of racism it's because of you know the structural racism that leads to differential access and and lack of trust and bias in the healthcare system and all of those things like if we had to pick the number one root cause for any of these disparities racism would be it but maybe there are also some ancestral genetic components so I don't think we should ignore them, and I think we need to diversify clinical trials for that reason. And also, not to get off on a soapbox, but diversifying clinical trials is complicated because our country again has a very long history of serious research abuses, right? From J. Marion Sims studying, um, you know, gynecology on, on female slaves to Henrietta Lacks, you know, um, to Tuskegee to anything else that you can think of. Black Americans are loath to trust the US healthcare system and research enterprise, and they're right. So we have to do all this and we have to hold all of it and it's all really complex. It's not as easy as just throw some black people in your trial and you're good to go. You've got to build trust with them and you have to understand why you're doing it. And it's not, it's not just because of biology. It's, it's also to build trust and it's also to get at some of these structural and social differences.
1: So uh, my last question for you is, uh, what are some suggestions to alleviate the misuse of race, in research and clinical metrics
0: yeah so we had a win recently like i said when the national kidney foundation removed race correction from their estimated glomerular filtration rate calculation Um, used to be that you'd multiply the serum creatinine by a different coefficient if the patient was african-american and now we've done away with that so i think that's a good model it's a good place to start because we just won that one so it took years of advocacy, right? It took multiple research studies showing how the practice hurt Black people and, you know, research into how instead we should estimate EGFR, what, what equation we should use in, in placement of it. Um, so we probably have to use that, that same model for each of these other race-based medicine algorithms. And hopefully it will take a little bit less time each time as more people get acculturated to this and learn about this. So I think certainly spirometry and vital art should be next on the list and we should use that same model. And then we also have to stop doing research that leads to these race-based clinical algorithms uh, because you know we could stop the ones that are already out there but we have to stop them from being created in the first place too um so at my institution i sit on the irb and i basically try to police it myself so we get studies fairly frequently that are kind of similar to that vital study that make the same logical leaps that are sort of headed down the same path um you know things that are more often than not funded by pharmaceutical companies that say something like you know we know the best drug to treat XY disease in white people, we want to now study what the best drug is to treat this disease in black people. So we're going to just study our population of self-identified African-Americans and then figure out what drug or what dose is right for them. Um, we, We really just can't let that happen, right? We can't let these same research studies go on the way they have been designed because we know where it's going to lead. And so this is, this is complicated regulatorily, which is what I wrote that paper about, because IRBs are not supposed to consider the long range policy implications of research that they're reviewing. But I argue in the paper that we can consider the risks in front of us. And we now know what those risks are. I mean, we, we know that you know, embedding race further into clinical algorithms is only something we're gonna have to detangle later. We know that it's scientifically flawed. You know, IRBs, it's not exactly their purview, but we are allowed to consider the science and we are allowed to consider the the potential for the benefit of this study, and we're allowed to weigh that against the risks. So I think we've got to do two things at the same time. We've got to go into our hospitals and our clinics and start talking to our pulmonologists, cardiologists, OBGYNs, you know, nephrologists about how to stop doing what they have been doing um, which can which can be hard conversations. It can lead to defensiveness because people have been practicing a certain way for a long time, um, but I we can bring a lot of evidence to bear for those conversations. And in our research spaces, we have to stop um, these studies that are designed to lead to those very same outcomes. So two things, um, but hopefully those are somewhat helpful.
1: No, oh, absolutely helpful. Uh, and these are important conversations that we definitely need to have Um, because in many ways we reify and continue to reassert uh, these notions that are deemed pseudoscience and foolish, but yet it still is a stain and permeates in our conversations, in our research, in our thoughts, and also um, in an interpersonal way in our behaviors in the clinical process when we deal with patients and communities of color. So definitely um, a very important topic, and we're so grateful to have one of our own, uh, Nicole Strand, to share a little piece of her research and her um, expertise in a very important area. So thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nicole.
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on Bioethics in the Margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.